time, he was and still is today both influential and controversial. He is loved by a current-day resurgence of Reformed pastors and theologians who buy into the theological system that he preached. He is remembered in academic circles as, quote, America's most important and original philosophical theologian. You probably didn't know that he was a philosopher, but Stanford University websites talk about him as being the most original and important American philosopher of all time. He was the third president of the College of New Jersey that today is known as Princeton University. And he is reviled by literary professors who hold Jonathan Edwards up as the example of all that was wrong with the Puritan era in New England and therefore someone who can be mocked to make fun of Christians today. The reason that Jonathan Edwards' name comes up in modern high school and college literature classes stems from one sermon that he preached that is arguably the most well-known American sermon ever. So help me out here. The sermon's title was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? Anybody ever read the whole thing? A handful of you have. I remember having a high school literature class where uh, all of a sudden the, the whole concept of Jonathan Edwards and sinners of a, in the hands of an angry God was brought up. And I have to tell you, he wasn't dealt with easily or lightly. Uh, he was seen as somebody who believed in this archaic faith that we'd never want anything uh, to do with. Who would want to believe in a God that actually gets angry at the sins of the world? Now, I I want you to know where we're headed this morning. I chose to begin with these thoughts about Jonathan Edwards because I'm going to ask you to stretch a bit this morning. When we have tried something like this in the past, our congregation has a history of engaging our minds and taking on the challenge. So I'm hoping that this is one of those Sundays and that you guys are with me and that I'm not going to put you to sleep over the next few minutes because I'm going to ask you to do something we don't normally do here. I'm going to ask you to think theologically for a few minutes. To think theologically. Now, what I mean by that is not to be tied only in the text of the immediate passage that we are dealing with. We are going to deal with this passage, but I want want you to think more broadly than that. I want you to think about the upper story of what God is doing, as well as we think through a fresh way to look at this story that is so familiar among many Christians, at least among many who who are very comfortable with the Bible. This morning, we're in the midst of a series that we're calling Surprised by Jesus. And all summer long, we've been looking at snapshot after snapshot where Jesus surprised either his original audience or his disciples or where we are still surprised by the way he taught today. And so today, we're going to look at another familiar lesson from Jesus that was designed for surprising results. Many of you know this lesson as the parable of the prodigal son, but I want to tie it to what Jonathan Edwards preached back in 1741. So my topic this morning is sinners in the hands of a redemptive God. I want you to understand where that's coming from. In order to get there, we've got to ask a question. Why was sinners in the hands of an angry God so memorable? A few reasons for that. The first was that it was aimed at indifferent church folks during a time of revival. So the words you're missing there are indifferent and revival. Edwards, on that particular day, on July 8th, uh, 1741, had a very short biblical text that he was preaching from. So he was preaching a theological message that used as a springboard this one phrase from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35 in the King James Bible. That one phrase says, their foot shall slide in due time. 
Sinners in, in the hands of an angry God took place during a period that was known as the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening was a period of unprecedented spiritual revival here in the United States from about 1733 to 1742. Sometimes historians take that all the way up to 1743. If you ever see an old New England church and out in front it has the origin date of the church and it says 1741 or 1742 on it, that was most likely a great awakening church, meaning there was some kind of a spiritual outbreak that happened. And because people in the original church they were part of were so uncomfortable by the emotionalism and by the individual responses that rose from the great awakening that they had to leave and start new churches. So Second Parish in Hingham, for instance, on Main Street, if you look right on it, it says 1741 on there. That's a great awakening church. Today, that's a Unitarian church. It's no longer a a gospel-teaching church in a pure way. But back in 1742, they had to start their own church because there was a revival that happened and some people responded and they weren't welcome in the church they'd been a part of. And there are several churches like that around this landscape here in New England. A handful of revival preachers, including Gilbert Tennant, George Whitfield, and Jonathan Edwards, were instrumental figures who were profoundly used by God during that time. In town after town, up and down eastern states... Periods of revival had broken out. While thousands of people repented of sins and turned to Jesus Christ in faith, not all were thrilled with this new style of religious fervor. New England churches were caught in a battle among the pastors and the theologians. It was called the the struggle between the old light and the new light congregationalists. The old light people who are congregationalists and sometimes Anglicans uh, believed that everything should be prim and proper and there should be no emotion whatsoever in the service and that everything should be very, very reserved. The new light people realized that the gospel calls us to react and that when you capture this sense of grace that is embedded in the Gospels, that it lights your heart on fire, and that you have to respond by calling out to Jesus, and that there were changes that would happen in people's lives. And people got excited about that. And the folks who brought over the old English reserve into the church weren't happy about any emotionalism at all in church. Now, that was not only going on here in the United States, that was going on over in England. George Whitfield's friend, John Wesley, got caught in the same trap, and as he began to preach in Anglican churches like the one that he was ordained in, they were locked out of the churches. And so that some of the, the revival preachers were not allowed there, so they went out into the fields, and they would preach to the coal miners on their noon lunch break. And there was this massive revival, uh, a movement of God that was sweeping through the hearts of people that went from this continent across the pond and over to Great Britain as well. On July 8, 1741, Edwards was the guest preacher in Enfield, Connecticut. He, he lived in the Connecticut River Valley. He, he was a pastor of a church up in Northampton, Mass, near, near University of Massachusetts. One report holds that Jonathan Edwards was not even the scheduled preacher for that day. But when somebody got sick or was unable to go forward, the pastor of that local church called on Edwards. And there was a reason that he was hoping that Edwards would speak, because his church was the only church in that area of northern Connecticut and and, uh, western Massachusetts that had not responded to the gospel. In other words, it was kind of an old light congregational, and they had resisted this revival that was breaking out all around the, the eastern states. This Enfield pastor was concerned because his church were, had resisted in so many ways. 
So Edwards reached into his saddlebag and pulled out the message that he'd given a few weeks earlier at his own church in Northampton. Nobody knew exactly what was going to happen that way. It wasn't planned the way that the results occurred. But knowing that Edwards had a role in the early part of the revival, this pastor hoped that God would again work through Jonathan Edwards on that day. When he had preached this same sermon earlier in his own congregation, there had been no response whatsoever that's recorded. In other words, people just thought, ah, another Jonathan Edwards, theologically precise sermon. Ah, I'm done. The text that he used was from Deuteronomy 32, this one line, their foot shall slide in time. Deuteronomy 32 is also known as the Song of Moses. And in that chapter, Moses meditated on the rebellion against God of the Exodus generation. In other words, the people who'd seen all the miracles, including the Red Sea and God coming on the top of the mountain and giving them the Ten Commandments and had wandered through the desert for 40 years after they refused to go into the promised land. And that line imagines the danger surrounding people who walk along treacherous heights by ignoring the wisdom of God that they have heard, that they know is true, but they they nonetheless resist and say, someday, maybe, I'll let the Lord penetrate my heart and mind. And his thought was that sooner or later, their feet will slip and they will fall. So if they are not walking in God's light, what will keep them from falling to destruction? That was really the idea behind the sermon. Second thought. Sinners in the hands of an angry God use powerful imagery to portray a sense of danger. This is just uh, two sentences from one paragraph of uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I'm not going to read you the whole sermon. It would take 48 minutes, which is a lot longer than I'm going to take here. By the way, there are some historians that try to tell their students that he preached for six hours that day. No. Uh, During the week, I listened to somebody who was just reading it in a monotone voice, less than 48 minutes for the whole thing. Here's that paragraph. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully, uh, dreadfully provoked You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Pretty stern stuff, right? What was he doing there? Well, first of all, reports say that Edward read his sermons without any drama in his voice. He was a non-emotional guy when he was preaching. Some critics have said that uh, this was a highly emotional, manipulative talk, but it, it really wasn't. It was delivered in kind of an academic fashion. And despite the lack of drama and his habit of reading from a manuscript, Edwards was interpreted several times or interrupted several times by people during the sermon calling out saying, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to respond to Jesus? Where can I get his mercy? And people were beginning to react as they were hearing this stern warning about the judgment that comes on people who know the truth, but who keep just pushing it aside and pushing it aside and saying, maybe later. The sermon turned on these foundational points. Number one, the creator God's righteous wrath over the sin and rebellion of rebellious people. Two, the belief that hell is real 
and that it awaits those who refuse or reject the offer of grace. Three, that God does not owe the pleasures of heaven to those who resist his mercy. Four, the only thing keeping unrepentant people from the flames of hell is the mercy of God. Now, what do preachers do with something like this? The, the main aim behind every sermon is to influence people, not to manipulate people, but to take a body of truth and to present it in such a way that there is an action that results from that. By the way, I do that every single week here. I try to teach you what I believe that the Bible is saying as best as I can, as faithful as I can. But then we, we talk about what do we do with this? Where do we go with that and how to respond? The dominant image that Edwards used was of God's hands holding the sinner like a spider over the flames. Now, this is where you have to either choose to embrace the way that he wrote that sermon or take the interpretations that have lingered sometimes in the view of the critics. What was God doing? So when I was in my high school literature class, what the teacher was telling was this was a God who takes people and holds them over the fire and torments them, virtually torturing them by holding them over this fire. However, when you read the whole sermon, when you listen to the whole sermon, both of which I've done in the past week, you find this is actually an opposite truth that he was telling, that it is God's mercy that is the only thing that keeps his judgment from breaking out on us, and that the things that we naturally do result in natural penalties, and it is only God's mercy that keeps us from his judgment now. And therefore, it, it, rather than being a, a, a message of torture and torment, it's actually about the mercy and the safety of being in God's hands, even those who are pushing him away. Does that make sense? So there's an interpretive decision that we must make when we read something like this. People, therefore, who are awakened to their spiritual need will immediately turn to Christ. That was his theory. Here's the third reason uh, that this sermon was so memorable. God was at work in a powerful way. Edwards was preaching a sermon that had little reaction the first time. So it wasn't just the words of the sermon and it wasn't some kind of magic that every time this sermon was, was preached that it would have the same reaction. And he read his sermon literally word for word. One report says that he actually never finished this particular sermon because the response of the people was so great, they started flooding the stage. What explains something like that? Only God. That God was at work in a powerful way that was far beyond Edwards. Okay, remember when I said I want you to think theologically? This is where that part comes in. There are some theological questions that I would like to throw out there for us to think through as we think through the, the contrast between Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and the prodigal son. Here's the first question. Does this angry God image offer a complete picture of God? I'd say no. But there's more, Right? No one sermon can capture all of God. Can you, can I, with your mind, with my mind, can we capture all of who God is? No. It's an impossible task because we are finite and somewhat limited. God is infinite, so there's always more than we are capable of knowing 
uh, at all times. That's a cool thought. That means for eternity we will continue to discover more about God. 1 John 4.19 says, We love him because he first loved us. Now, I'm not asking us to reject the concept of God's righteous anger over sin. There's a place for that. Moses described God's anger in Deuteronomy 32. The Apostle Paul writes it in Romans chapter 1. There he says, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness and the suppression of truth. The Apostle John wrote that the wrath of God remains on those who reject Jesus, the Son. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Hebrews, and Jesus and Matthew and Luke all touch on this same theme. Yet John's gospel stresses a different image. We know it in verses like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. Later in 1 John he adds, we love him because he first loved us. Put together, God has every reason to be angry at people who reject his truth, spurn his wisdom, uh, just take for granted every gift that we're given in life, yet he suspends that anger with his love and mercy which dominates. Second theological question. How does this fit with the redemptive arc of God's work as a whole? In other words, how does this particular sermon fit with what God is doing through the whole redemptive history of the world? Let me throw another verse at you. This is Second Peter 3.9. Here Peter writes... The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What do we learn about God there? God is patient. He's not slow on his timing. He is sometimes in our timing because we put demands on God unfairly. But he's patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. In this context, perish means to die with the responsibilities of your own sins on your shoulders. And he wants everyone to come to repentance, which is a fancy theological word that literally means to have a change of mind that results in a change of action. How does this fit with the redemptive arc of God's word? The Bible as as a whole is one great redemption story. That's why we showed that particular video just before I walked up here that talks about the Bible story from Adam and Eve all the way to to Revelation as being our story. We fit in somewhere on that redemptive arc of what God is doing. There are four movements to the story. Creation, the fall, redemption, which is a long process that was leading up to Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, and restoration. And God is still in the process of redeeming people, but also we look forward to one day he will restore the world to its original splendor. Heaven will come down, whatever heaven is like, and heaven and earth will be united, and the dwelling place of God will be among human beings. That's that's the final chapters of the Bible. That's what's coming. Second Peter stresses that God is patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish in their sins. He wants all to come to repentance. Peter here was speaking about God's expressed desire... He's not saying this is exactly what will happen, like people are compelled against their will, but that God longs for everyone to respond to his offer of grace and mercy. Peter, who failed Jesus in his greatest hour of trial, saw the redemptive power of God worked out in his own life, and he knew passionately what he was talking about. 
So we stay out of trouble and find balance when we interpret Scripture in the light of the overall redemptive arc of God's Word and His work. Here's the third theological question. We know the image that on that particular day that Edwards wanted us to see, that God is the one who's keeping us from the flames, right? What image, is the third question, what image did Jesus want us to see when we think about God? Did he want us to walk through life fearing God, thinking God's holding us over a flame, and boy, if you make the wrong step, you're that stuff off your hamburger on the grill that falls through, and all of a sudden... I was thinking about this uh, a few weeks ago when I took a class. And in the particular class that we have, we were asked to look at a bunch of our teaching, all the people in it who are longtime pastors or chaplains, and there was a lot of experience to filter through. But we were looking at this concept of the redemptive arc of God and challenged to go back and look at some of the things that we have taught and how does it fit in the light of these important theological questions. And I made a crack in the class. I said, wow, this is really cool when we think of the redemptive arc of God. What if John Edwards had done this? What if Jonathan Edwards, instead of preaching a message on sinners in the hands of an angry God, what if he had had a follow-up message the next week that was sinners in the hands of a redemptive God? And everybody kind of buzzed and said, oh, that's kind of funny. I said, no. But for me, it didn't go away. It stayed in my head. And I realized I had to come back and work on that theme a little bit. Now, what are we not doing? We're not rejecting the theology of the past. We're not saying that Edwards was necessarily wrong. In fact, God used him tremendously, far greater mind than mine. Uh, maybe less cynical than, than my mind. but um, And yet, looking at the balance, what would you preach next after you'd preach that sermon? And so we come to the prodigal son story. And there are three things I think that Jesus wants us to see. Here's the first one. That spiritually lost people matter to God. That is one of our core values around here at North River. has been for 29 years. Luke 15.10, Luke 15 verses 1 and 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There were three parables that Jesus told that day. We only read one. The first two had to do with a shepherd who loses one sheep that wanders away. He puts the 99 in a safe place. He goes off to find the one lost sheep. And when he finds that sheep, he throws a party, calls all of his friends and neighbors, said, you must celebrate with me, for the sheep that was lost is now found. And Jesus says, something to the effect of, so it is in the kingdom of heaven. When one spiritually lost and confused person responds, all of heaven breaks out in celebration. On the heels of that, he tells another uh, parable, and he says, uh, imagine a woman who loses a coin. She has ten silver coins. I'm picturing this as part of her dowry. This is all of her wealth. And she loses the one. He says, will she not light a lamp? That's the first thing she does. And then sweep the entire house, searching it, until she finds that one coin. And then when she finds the coin, won't she call all of her friends and neighbors and say, come celebrate with me. I lost this one very valuable silver coin. And uh, we need to celebrate because what was lost is now found. And again, Jesus says that there will be celebrations and that the Lord himself will be leading the celebration in heaven when one lost sinner repents, has that change of mind that results in a change of action. 
And then there's the third parable, the one that we read about the lost son who wanders away deliberately and finally comes home. In each of these three parables, something of value is lost and found. The shepherd goes out to find his lost sheep. A woman lights a lamp and sleeps her house until she finds that silver coin. The father waits and runs toward his wayward son when he returns toward home. The value of what was found also rises with each parable. Do you ever notice that? The shepherd has found one out of a hundred sheep that was lost. Do the math. What's the percentage here? One percent, right? But he celebrates greatly. Then the, the woman has found one out of ten coins that was lost. What's the math here? It's ten percent, right? One out of ten. And the father celebrated even more so that there was singing and there was dancing and they killed the fatted calf because there was one out of two sons he had. In other words, half of all the people that he loved most dearly in the world had been lost to him and dead to him and had come back. So the value goes up with each parable. Of course the shepherd would be excited about finding that one lost sheep. Of course the woman would be excited about finding her one lost coin. But how much more then should this father, if we understand him, celebrate and rejoice over the one lost son coming because it was half of all the people that he loved most dearly. Jesus artfully drew his critics by involving them in the first parable. He says, knowing that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are there and they're muttering about the kind of people that he hangs out with, he says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. And they're going, well, of course, yeah, I'd do that. Of course, yeah, if I was a shepherd and I had a hundred sheep and there was one that go, I'd go try to find that sheep. They're instantly trapped because they're inside the parable. It's subversive preaching that Jesus was doing in that moment. His point is that, of course, you would go and you would, you would search out that lost sheep. And one of the brilliant things about all three parables is they're designed for us to put ourselves in the middle of them. And by the time of the third parable, the force of his conclusion would hit the Pharisees and the teachers of the law with tremendous impact that people matter much more than sheep and much more than coins. That spiritually lost people, the ones they had muttered about, matter greatly to God. Here's the second thing he wanted us to see. It's the image of a rejoicing father, not an angry God. I'm not saying that what Edwards preached wasn't true, but what Jesus focused on was a very, very different image. The rejoicing father when the sinner comes home. So Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, in each of these three parables, something of value is lost and found. The shepherd goes out to find his lost sheep. A woman lights a lamp and sweeps her house until she finds her lost coin. The father waits and runs toward his wayward son as he finally turns toward home. Each of these parables also ends with a scene of rejoicing and celebration. So the shepherd calls his friends and neighbors together and they celebrate over the lost sheep. The woman calls her friends and neighbors together to celebrate that she's found her lost coin. The father celebrates his son's return with singing and dancing and robes and rings. And man, this is an amazing party. Uh, think of the best 
outdoor grilling party on your block. Everybody wants in on this celebration. One thing, though, separates the lost son from the lost sheep and the lost coin. Did you notice? The lost sheep was not capable of repenting. The lost coin was not capable of repenting. It's an inanimate object. The son rehearses his repentance speech all the way home. And the father doesn't even let him finish because he knows what's coming off of his lips. The words are less important than the heart. He's, he's just barely getting the words out and the father's already saying, Quick, kill the fatted calf, bring him a robe, bring a ring, put, put sandals on his feet, let the party start. And we discover something about the heart of our God. And one more discovery. Here's the third thing Jesus wants us to see. God's complete involvement in redeeming people. This isn't just a secondary thing. The Pharisees might have missed it, but the shepherd imagery in the first parable and throughout Scripture is strong. So he says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one lost sheep until he finds it? They would have understood this kind of language. David had written so many years earlier, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me. He restores me. Isaiah chapter 40, God says, I, uh, like a shepherd, he will lead his flock. There are many other passages in the Old Testament similar to that. I just don't have time to recite them all. And then Jesus adds in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd knows his sheep. They know his voice. And it's hard to miss the imagery that there's a likeness to Jesus in that first parable. It is also hard to miss the comparison of the father in the prodigal son story, the third parable, with God himself. So here the the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven, in other words, God, and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So God is all of a sudden in this story too. Jesus never comes out and says, this is God the Father, because the parables were so obvious that it almost would have been insulting if he deliberately made that connection. He knew that's what they'd see. But here's the third factor. Go back to the second parable in your mind for a moment and notice what the woman does. The woman who's lost her coin, the first thing she does is she lights a lamp. In order to see, you need light. We've already been, we've already seen the searching shepherd and the waiting father, and now we see an image of the illuminating spirit. Michael Wilcock, a Brit, a former director of pastoral studies at Trinity College in Bristol, England, notes that the Holy Spirit's role is always to light the way for those who search for his truth. And nobody ultimately comes to that truth without the Holy Spirit lighting the way somewhere along. And so in this subtle way, Jesus was dropping clues about the orientation and involvement of the entire Trinity, which is bent toward redemption. 
The sun goes out and seeks. The Holy Spirit is lighting the way and illuminating minds and opening hearts. And the Father waits and welcomes and forgives and celebrates as soon as the words are on the lips. So here's the big idea for this morning. Jesus wants us to know for sure that we can bring sinful, lost, and spiritually broken people into the hands of a redemptive God. So a few weeks ago when I was in this class and this uh, kind of uh, spontaneous, cynical thought came into my mind, what if old Jonathan Edwards had preached a different message and he'd preached sinners in the hands of a redemptive God? And I started to research a little more about what I understood about that great sermon from July 8th, 1741. And one of the things I found that was when Edwards died, he was working on his final project that he considered to be the most important in his life, and it was an unfinished project. It was called A History of the Work of Redemption. Isn't that awesome? Back in 1739, he had preached a series of sermons at his home church in Northampton before he got kicked out of there in 1750. And all of the messages had to do with seeing the redemptive work of God throughout history. And what he longed to do was write one massive work that looked at the redemptive nature of God from beginning to end in order to tell the story. But all that we were left with was a notebook filled with his outlines. So if you look for it, there is a book under that title. Uh, The title is A History of the Work of Redemption, but it's just his outline. He never got to write the story. Why tell you that? I think that every day you and I are living out the reality of what Edwards wanted to finish with. And I think if he had a chance to do it over again, the last message that he would have left us with is this one. Sinners in the hands of a redemptive God. Because people need to know that when they come home, when they finally turn toward him, He is the Father whose arms are open wide. And while the words are still being formed on the lips, you don't even have to get the right words of of repentance. He knows the heart. That's why there's no formula. It's just a changed heart that he's looking for. And people are changed. And that is our story. That is God's story to the end of our days, to the day when Jesus comes again. We live in the age of redemptive God. Amen? Father God, thank you for a congregation that's willing to be challenged sometimes and to think deeply. And so as we process this, and we process what Jesus was doing subversively and giving us a new more dominant picture of God. We recognize your strength. We recognize you have every right to respond in anger, but we are grateful that you are God who who suspends all of that because of the greatness of your mercy and your longing for people to come home. Lord, I ask that you do two things with this message in our hearts this week. The first is to encourage us in regard to your redemptive nature. That you know our stories, you know our rebellions, you know the times we've hidden from you, or the times we still want to shake our fists at you. 
Thank you for being so more greatly redemptive than we could ever imagine. And God, I pray that you will give us confidence as we walk in the midst of a world that seems to know your truth, knows all about Jesus, knows all about the Bible, even knows the title of sinners in the hands of an angry God. But they don't really know you. Give us the confidence that you are still in the business and at work in turning hearts toward home. And give us the confidence that as we tell our story over dinner, over a cup of coffee, to a co-worker who's going through a hard time, to our own children, that you are the same God who responds so graciously, that your Holy Spirit is still lighting the way, and that Jesus is still out there searching and bringing them home. It's in his name we pray. Amen.